Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we pick a new book and we interview the... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we pick a new book and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say we have Emily Matcher on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, Homeward Bound, Why Women Are Embracing the New Domesticity. Um, I'm not quite a stay-at-home husband, but I'm pretty close, so I feel like I've uh, embraced the new uh, domesticity. So I'm very interested to talk to uh, Emily about how lots of folks are embracing the new... I don't know if I embraced it or not. I'm I'm not sure. But in any event, I I definitely do a lot of domestic stuff. Uh, So again, the book was quite appealing to me, and I really enjoyed reading it. So Emily, uh, congratulations on the book, and thanks for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. All right. So um, could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, sure. Um, I am a freelance writer. Um, I usually write about things that could generally be put under the the umbrella of culture. So uh, women's issues, food stuff, some politics. And uh, I'm from North Carolina originally. Right now I live in Hong Kong. And I write for a variety of magazines and newspapers. And like you said, my book, Homeward Bound, Why Women Are Embracing the New Domesticity, came out. um, It was published by Simon & Schuster in May of this year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, well, again, congratulations on the book. So tell us why you wrote um, Homeward Bound. Yeah, so as a writer who is interested in, in culture, in food, and in women's issues, I kept coming again and again. I kept meeting people who were really into some aspect of domesticity in a sort of unexpected way. I was meeting, you know, young um working women, you know, in their, in their twenties who are really into canning jam. And I was meeting people who were living in Brooklyn and trying to keep chickens in their backyard. And all of this stuff was becoming very trendy. And I was beginning to wonder if it wasn't all somehow part of the same phenomenon, if it wasn't somehow related. So I started looking at some of the reasons why people were sort of returning to or re-embracing old-fashioned or lost domestic arts and practices. And um, and I, I got curious about it. And as I did research, I began to see that, yeah, you know, there was a lot of reasons why, you know, people, especially young people, were so fascinated with this stuff. Um, and, uh, and that's where the book came. Mm-hmm. Now, do we have any um, numbers on, for example, one of the manifestations of this, I would suppose, and again, I don't know, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, is that um, young women are uh, choosing to stay home and do things. I, I, I don't know what they do at home. I mean, I suppose raise children or not. Um, my sister, for example, is a stay-at-home mom. Uh, do we have numbers on this? Is it increasing or decreasing? And among what class of people? And is, is you know, are they white? Are they black? Are they urban? Are they rural? Do we know anything about the demographics of this? Yeah, you know, since it's such um, a multi-part phenomenon, 
it, we have to look at di- different numbers and different kinds of statistics to sort of see the big picture. So, you know, most women are not staying home, at least not all the time. You know, most women have to work. And I think what we're seeing is a general sort of pulling back from a lot, you know, from, from being maximally ambitious. And that's not just among young women. It's among men, too. If you talk to members of, of Gen Y, they've been, you know, m- when you poll members of Gen Y, they will say that they are much, they, they're more likely to describe themselves as family-centric than baby boomers are. And baby boomers are much more likely to describe themselves as work-centric. And we see it in numbers of young women and also young men who say that, you know, they're very interested in, in, you know, achieving at the top level of their jobs. Uh, Those numbers have declined since the 90s and people who are polled will say that they're more interested in spending time with family. So those are, uh, that's one way of looking at this. Then you look at the sort of the different aspects of what I call new domesticity, all of the all of the old-fashioned domestic stuff people are embracing, the canning, the chicken keeping, the knitting, you look at any of those and there's a lot of numbers for that. You know, the numbers of, uh, of young people canning has gone up, um, you know, by something like two times in the past three years mm-hmm. and people are gardening more and people are raising their own animals and those are all measurable and that's all happened really in the past five plus years. Mm-hmm. I guess the question that is behind my question is, is this driven by an actual change in values among uh, men and women, or is this a fad? Now, you know, so, so here's the way I, I look at it. There are aspects of this that may be, you know, trendy. I don't know if jam canning specifically <laughs> is going to be, you know, a big thing in 10 years. But what I see is behind it, the motivations behind people embracing sort of slower, more DIY, more hands-on kind of lifestyles, it's driven by um, the economy. It's driven by uh, more concern with the environment, with sustainability, um, living more sustainable, smaller-scale lifestyles. It's driven by a real reaction among younger people towards seeing what their parents went through working as hard as they did and not necessarily being rewarded in the end. And those are pretty big cultural shifts. So mm-hmm. I don't see that as, as a fad. Mm-hmm. I think we've, we, we've shifted, but any, you know, any specific aspect of it. I have friends you know, with, I have, I have friends with urban chickens. So yeah, um, yeah. I, I do. I do too. <laughs> yeah. Um, being from Kansas, I guarantee you I'll never have urban chickens. Uh, so uh, one, um, so again, to specify the phenomenon, the people I know who do these kinds of things are what I would call white and upper class. Is this generally? Uh-huh. I mean, they're people that graduated from the right schools, and you know this sort of thing. I mean, is, is there any evidence that there's? I, I mean, is it other places? And it's kind of a you know you mentioned Brooklyn. Brooklyn is the kind of the locus classicus for this sort of thing, or the Bay Area, uh-huh. or I don't know Chicago, or something like this. Is it? Is it? Is it demographically discreet in that way? Well, you know, I I did interview people in Brooklyn. I interviewed people in the Bay Area and in Chicago. But I also interviewed women in the Dakotas. I interviewed women in (laughs) rural Canada. I interviewed women, um, lots of women from around where I'm from in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And here's what I would say. It's, It's... I do not see it as an upper class phenomenon. That's what I thought it might be at first. I thought, oh, maybe it's sort of like a lot of, um, you know, very upper middle class hobbyists. But what I actually see is 
I see this as a, a middle class phenomenon. So we're talking about people who, you know, who are educated, but don't have, you know, money to do whatever they want. And these are the people who are sort of stretched the thinnest. These are the people who, you know, work hard and have decent jobs, but not the top jobs, you know, and are not making tons of money. And these are the people who, you know, are educated enough to be concerned with where their food comes from, but not rich enough to just, you know, buy all organic from Whole Foods and therefore are the most interested in, you know, maybe trying to erase some of their food themselves. Mm -hmm. These are the people who may have the most trouble finding decent, affordable childcare and are concerned enough about, you know, what that means to maybe want to not work full time or maybe want to embrace these more intensive forms of parenting that have become very popular, the attachment parenting and that sort of thing, mm -hmm. you know, Whereas, you know, the, the, the truly wealthy can just, you know, they can get a great nanny or they can send their kids to a five-star daycare, no problem. Mm -hmm. So I see this as a reaction among the middle class, the people who are stretched, the people who in modern life has sort of, is not necessarily working out for the best. Mm -hmm. I see. So does embracing the domesticity among most of these people involve, let's talk about two parents, let's talk about couples of any sort um, with children. Um does this involve only one of the parties working or two part-time jobs or how, how does it, how, in other words, I'm kind of wondering where the, who funds this new domesticity? Somebody has to work, right? So it's middle class. Yeah. So in my book, I look at different aspects of new domesticity. I, you know, I have a chapter about craft culture and the rise of Etsy and Pinterest yeah, and websites like that. And you know, when you look at that aspect, you know, I maybe just be talking about people that are doing crafting as a hobby and it has nothing mm -hmm. to do with their work. But then you get into, you get into it a bit deeper. You talk about people who are trying to homestead or you talk about people that are, you know, involved in, you know, very whole scale, you know, natural living who are trying to do attachment parenting. Mm -hmm. And then that's when it really begins to have an impact on jobs. Yeah. And I did talk to a lot of people who had single income households and a lot of, you know, it was almost always the woman who had dropped back from the workplace or left the workplace entirely. And it, you know, they were, they, you know, they would say that they were using their their domestic prowess to actually save money. And yeah. so they were able to live on a one, uh, you know, a one-person income better than the average American family. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. So, I mean, I, I know that among some of the people I know who do this, one partner does stay home or they have part-time jobs, and what they say is that they don't really need two incomes, that in fact, new incomes, two incomes is just, just, it's just more money than they need. Did you find that feeling? Well, uh, I, I talked to a lot of people who felt that way, and mm -hmm. I think, you know, the only issue with that is, uh, you know, at any given point in their life, they may only need one income, but, you know, careers are about more than just yeah. your income at, at any given time. And yeah. so I did worry that a lot of the people who had dropped back from the workplace were going to need or want those careers in the future. And unfortunately, in America, it is not that easy to get back on track mm -hmm. when your kids are older. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and I think some of them will find that it doesn't work out for them financially you know, in the long term, mm -hmm. but, you know, for, for, for a lot of them, they were being very frugal. They were living very frugally. They were, you know, some people were 
homeschooling their kids instead of sending them to private school if they lived in an area where they didn't feel happy with the public schools and they were really cooking a lot from scratch and mm-hmm. you know some of them were even making their clothes and you know you can certainly save some money doing that certainly they were living frugal lifestyles mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's interesting so let's talk a little bit about the uh, having established the fact of it let's talk a little bit about its origins you have a chapter that's about the origins of this sort of thing from uh, angels in the house to the crunchy domestic goddesses. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the history of women's work and, and what it means? This is women's work in, I guess it's in straight quotes. So uh, can you uh-huh. talk a little about that? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I have a chapter in the book. Like you said, it's about the history of, of what we call women's work, about how women have how this work has been viewed by society at large and how this, how women have felt about this work. So when I, you know, women's work, we're talking about stuff that's done inside the house, cooking, um, you know, cleaning and childcare have historically been viewed as women's work. And uh, the most sort of interesting thing to me is that, you know, pre pre industrial revolution, there was less of a concept of men's work versus women's work, because at least in, in America, people were doing a lot of small-scale homesteading and everyone was working and people were, you know, there were, there were different tasks depending on whether you were a man or a woman, but they were all, you know, they were all tasks that were essential to the running of the farm. So, you know, maybe the, the woman plucked the chicken and the man, man killed the chicken, the woman plucked it or vice versa. Uh, but it was, it was all done towards survival and everyone's work was equally important for survival. And then we had the Industrial Revolution and all of a sudden there are these new factory jobs and men are going or leaving the farm to go work these factory jobs. And suddenly our concept of work changes and suddenly work is something that you do for cash, for money. And so work becomes associated with men and housework becomes the woman's thing, unpaid housework is now the woman's thing. And that housework is less sort of, it's less fundamental at that point because now we have factories that, you know, we have mass produced food and things are cheaper and you don't have to knit your own blanket or, you know, freeze to death during the winter. (laughs) So the stuff women were doing that was really just part of survival becomes more sort of prettified and more part of more part of a hobby or something that women are supposed to do to fill their time. We're talking about middle-class people. Um, and that's when, that's when we start to have this concept of separate spheres that, you know, men go out and make money and women stay home and do housework. And that really, you know, that concept lasted uh, all the way through the, um, the mid 20th century when, when women started going to work in greater and greater numbers and contrary to what people think, I should say here that it wasn't the feminist movement of the, the second wave feminist movement of the sixties and seventies that got women in the workplace. Like all of a sudden women had actually been joining the workforce in larger numbers from really the end of the 19th century. But by the sixties and seventies, some barriers were down and women were able to get better and better jobs. And that's when we started seeing more equality. So I think a lot of people sort of mistakenly think that before then women were all housewives and after that women all worked, but it wasn't exactly like that. So, you know, so, so historically this woman's work has been, has been not very respected. It's been something that, you know, that women do and women have historically not had as much respect as men. Um, 
you know, it was seen as, as menial, not as important as what was done, you know, out in the world. And one of the things I saw with this new domesticity movement is it was part of a reclaiming of women's work is saying, hey, you know, just because something has historically been done by women doesn't mean that it's it's worthless or silly. Like, you know, just because women have historically been the ones who have been knitting, you know, doesn't mean knitting should be, you know, stup- considered stupid or old fashioned. You know, hey, like, let's embrace this. Let's say, you know, this is historically important women's work and this is cool. Let's really bring this back. And we've really seen a transformation in people's attitudes towards things like crafting and towards especially towards cooking. You know, cooking has really gone from being, uh, you know, this chore that women did to being, you know, uh, a super fun hobby for both men and women. Mm-hmm. So you talk about some of the various things that uh, these people that embrace the new home uh, domesticity do in, in a series of chapters. Um, but you begin with one about blogging. How, how, do blog, how did bloggers figure into this? Yeah, so I, I, it's basically one of my beliefs that new domesticity wouldn't exist without the internet. I think, you know, back in the 90s, there was, you know, a bit of a revival of crafting and uh, there were some women who were, you know, women who were involved in, in the punk rock music scene who were saying, hey, you know, like, let's do needlepoint and let's make it punk rock and let's make it cool again. <laughs> and, and I think that, that that would have been, you know, sort of like a, a fun 90s fad. But because the Internet was taking off at the same time, people were able to share these new hobbies and it really began to grow. And we, we saw these sites where people were sharing crafting tips. And all of a sudden, crafting wasn't something that, you know, your grandmother did. It was something that, you know, maybe some other women your age were doing and maybe they didn't live in your city, but you could share with them online. And so hobbies that once might have once been pretty marginal really created communities, really became communities online. And then more recently what we've seen is an explosion of what you'd call lifestyle blogs. People, mostly women, writing about you know, their domestic lives and showing pictures of their home designs and pictures of their kids and pictures of their recipes and stuff they're making for dinner. And often these are, you know, they're very sort of prettified. It's a very um, idyllic, beautiful look at, at somebody else's domestic life. And that has really spurred on the domestic movement. It's like, you know, there was one Martha Stewart in the eighties and nineties, and now there are 10,000 mm-hmm. Martha Stewart's yeah, online. Really and because they're bloggers, not authors, I think we tend to view them as, Hey, just ordinary women, you know, just like you or me. And then we tend to compare ourselves to them. And so I think, you know, we look at all these blogs and say, Hey, you know, she's just a regular person. How come my kitchen isn't as beautiful as hers? How come my pies don't look like hers? And it's this interesting kind of, of, uh, unhealthy self comparison that I think a, a lot of people who read blogs will probably relate with. Yeah. I mean, my only connection with it, I don't know about my only connection with the new domesticity, because as I'll say in a second, that a lot of this is reminiscent, reminiscent to me of something I encountered in Berkeley, California in the 1980s. But I'll talk about that in a second. And a book called Laurel's Kitchen. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. Uh, But um, there's a a site called Fly Lady. Do you know this site, Fly Lady? 
I don't. Anyway, Fly Lady, it's one of these domesticity sites, but it's kind of about how to like run your home. And it's a woman who like uh-huh. teaches people how to fly. I, I don't know exactly what the metaphor is, but my wife loves it. And like, uh-huh. she, she has all these kind of, they're really life hacks, like how to, how to do stuff around the house. And she'll say, well, let's do it this okay. way. Fly Lady says this and people chime in and, you know, like kind of, kind of how, how, to do, how to do a house. What's a, what's a smart yeah. way to do a house? And, uh, and, and you know, it's actually very helpful because a lot of people chime in. And I have to say a lot of the things – I do a lot of um, uh, domestic chores, let's put it that way. And a lot of the things that they say on Fly Lady really make a lot of sense, you know. So, um, like, clean the bathtub while you're in it. <laughs> Stuff like that. Yeah, so you nice. mentioned all these kind of and, – and it's related to this um, – and now I'll come to the Berkeley, California in the 1980s. Uh, this um, uh, do-it-yourself business. And, and I, I had come from uh, Kansas – and uh, where we didn't we didn't think of doing anything ourselves, uh, but and then I, when I got to California, I, I noticed that there were people who were making beer and they made cheese and they like ate snails and they you know they they they, they knitted and they did all this other stuff. Um, they baked their own bread, you know, all this other stuff. And there's this book called Laurel's Kitchen, which was kind of a philosophy about you know it was, it was talking about the '60s and sort of empowerment and all this other stuff. And but the thing about it is in Berkeley, California, all these things that you mentioned, which are also I think. Uh, aspects of this new, um, new domesticity. At that time, they were they were they were very powerfully linked with feminism. There was a, mm-hmm. there was a high, entire political agenda. Like if you read the the introduction to this book, Laurel's Kitchen, uh, it's it's very political. Um, is mm-hmm. the new domesticity, which again has a lot of these things in it, but it seems like a generation remove, is is the new domesticity linked to any sort of political agenda? Does it have any? Is it doing any? You know, does it have a larger sort of? cause or is is it motivated by some larger sort of cause? Well, so I think the origins of new domesticity do definitely come out of progressive ideologies about, hey, you know, let's bring back this, you know, these historically disrespected women's tasks and make them cool and make them relevant again, combined with a progressive interest in food and where food comes from and a progressive interest in sustainability and Mm -hmm. living lower on the food chain Mm -hmm. and relying less on corporations and, you know, DIYing it more. As it's evolved, I think some of its political political nature has been stripped away. I think some people are still very political about it and some people for them, it's all about sustainability. It's all about living a more eco-conscious life. But for other people, it's about, Oh, look, isn't handmade so charming. Let's sell things on, on Etsy. So as it's become bigger, I think it's become politicized to an extent. And, you know, you you mentioned Berkeley in the eighties and yeah, you know, absolutely. There has been this whole, there was a whole wave of, back to the land DIY stuff in the yeah. 60s and 70s. Um, and I think the difference was that was that was pretty aligned with a, a very liberal, you know, so what, what some of the country might have viewed as, you know, very fringe sort of hippie lifestyle, mm-hmm. whereas this stuff has made the leap more to the mainstream at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's right. I remember seeing, I don't know, you've doubtless seen the movie uh, Easy Rider, which came out in 68 or 69, I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a scene in that where the two protagonists, uh, 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 um, um, uh, Henry Fonda's son, what's, what's his name? I can't remember. But anyway, the two protagonists uh, go to a commune. 
And these are people uh-huh. who do everything DIY. And, you know, they've gone back to the land. And actually, looking on it in hindsight, it's very funny. But because uh, <laughs> they have no idea what they're doing. And they're in the desert. So uh, they can't grow anything. So anyway, it's this back to the land thing, um, which was still alive kind of in the 70s and 80s in Berkeley. People still talked about that sort of eco-utopianism and stuff like that. But it seems to me that the new domesticity that we're talking about is, a, is really a predominantly urban phenomenon. It's, 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 uh, it's in cities. Is that right? It's, you know, it's, it's in places where there are educated middle-class people. Mm-hmm. Um, so not, not just in cities, but, you know, I'm from, I'm from North Carolina. I'm from a, a Chapel Hill, it's mm-hmm. a college town, and, you know, this stuff is very big there. So, you know, wherever you have people that are interested in, you know, interested in, in alternative lifestyles who are, you know, who are educated, who are interested in doing things differently, maybe than the mainstream, you, you see this. So cities, you're going to see a lot of it. Well, I mean, you know, I, let me uh, just to play devil's advocate for a second. Um, I mean, I think this, what everything you say is absolutely correct and consistent with what I've seen, but there's nothing alternative about this at all. It's in Whole Foods, isn't it? No, absolutely, which is why I say that, you know, this has really made the leap to the mainstream. You know, maybe five years ago, making your own pickles was like, you know, would have been a pretty eccentric hobby. And now, I mean... It's so weird you mentioned that because I was just talking to my wife about making her own pickles. Wow. <laughs> so I think I'm one of these people. <laughs> so, yeah, you got me there. So, um, so the, the, you, can you tell us anything? And this is just something that occurs to me. Like, at what point did uh, the uh, adjective homemade uh, become replaced, or was it replaced by the word artisanal? Huh. You see what I mean? <laughs> like that, that right there, that. Artisanal cheese, not homemade, but artisanal bread. What what does that mean? <laughs> um, you know, it's it's one of those buzzwords that has become so ubiquitous in the past, you know, five yeah, odd years that you know it's meant to evoke all these, you know, all these these values. It's meant to evoke, you know, natural and wholesome and made by, you know small business people rather than big conglomerates and you know at this point it's become you know basically uh meaningless because yeah. anyone well, can find word on anything yeah i mean i do wonder about this too because i i know that like i i'm old enough to remember when bp changed their colors from i don't know what they were to green and they were the green gas company i mean to yeah. anybody that's ever seen an oil field knows that that's not possible grass companies can't be green that's it just doesn't work that way and then, well, you know, and then, you know, what happens. So it seems to me there's a lot of, uh, and this isn't particularly a bad thing, that um, there's a lot of entrepreneur, there's a lot of entrepreneurship in this. And I don't mind that at all. Like Etsy is a good example. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think as the interest in handmade stuff in, in, you know, relying less on big corporations and more on, you know, small business, uh, as, as that, you know, that has grown, we have seen a lot of people, you know, become interested in, in trying to do some of this stuff as a, as a business. Mm-hmm. So people, you know, look around and they go, Oh, you know, um, you know, handmade stuff is trendy. Knitting is trendy. 
homemade jam is is big maybe you know i like to do this stuff it's fun maybe i could do it for a living and mm-hmm. there are these new venues for selling this stuff like etsy being by far the biggest etsy you know is the this online online site where you can sell almost any kind of handmade craft and they take a, a small cut of whatever you sell and you know anyone with a computer connection can be on etsy in you know 10 minutes mm-hmm. selling anything they've made and so it's it has become a very attractive dream to a lot of people who see it as being you know feasible and some people do it some people you know make a living off of etsy some people start you know soap companies and sell their stuff at the farmer's market there's a lot more farmer's markets than there used to be some people you know start bread companies or cupcake companies mm-hmm. yeah. and in, i've, seen, I've seen all those in the places i've lived you know cupcakes yeah. is a good yeah. example yeah um i mean you know for the, for the people that do that that's great uh when i look at it you know in my chapter on on the rise of of interest in artisan business and the rise of etsy I, I do make some economic critiques that it's one of these things that the the number of people that are interested in doing that far outstrips the demand yeah. for handmade stuff, which generally tends to be expensive if you're pricing it correctly. So, you know, it's not a feasible goal for most people. You know, if you're really good at it and you're really business minded, it can be great. But for most people, you know, it's not might make them a little extra cash, but not a living. Uh-huh, I see. I mean, I, again, I, I think it's a very favorable development that people are are entrepreneurial about this. I mean, that, that's a good thing. America is a place where you can start a business, and I think people should. Uh, that, that's excellent. Um, there's a word that you use sometimes in the book that I wondered about, a uh, hipster. You use this word hipster. Now, as I understand it, this is a, t- a term of derogation. It's a, it's a, hipsters never call themselves hipsters, do they? I don't know. I don't, I don't know think any. they do. No, I don't think they do. But there are people that, you know, <laughs> like there's this, I don't know, there are lots of sites that make fun of this thing, hipsters, uh, whatever it is. What does that word mean and how does it relate to uh, the to, to uh, the new domesticity? Well, uh, I'm, I'm not specifically coming to mind where I'm using hipster, but I'm sure I use it a bunch of times throughout the book. And I'm not using it in a derogatory sense, but, uh-huh. you know, to sort of point out maybe people who are, who are younger, maybe people who identify who are sort of on the, on the front end yeah, of sure. trends. Yeah, it's just like avant-garde, you might say. Sure. Yeah. Okay. No, it wasn't meant as a critical question. I just, I was interested to see it here. Uh, it, it's one of the, I don't like this term very much at all. I think it is a term of derogation primarily, but anyway, it doesn't really matter. So uh, you do talk about something, again, being from the Midwest, homesteading. Homesteading. I think my ancestors homesteaded. I don't think they liked it one bit. uh, Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, so in the, you know, in the past few years, there has been a huge rise of interest in what people are calling homesteading. And what exactly that means, I think, depends on the person, some people. Uh, but it, 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 it's about living self-sufficiently to some degree. And for some people, that means uh, raising some chickens in their yard and gardening and trying to grow, say, 10% of all their food. And... For some people, that means trying to live off the grid entirely and building their house by hand and, you know, not having a car and making all their own energy. So it's about it's about self-sufficiency and mm-hmm. self-sufficiency has become another huge buzzword lately. Uh you know, people want to not rely as much on corporations because they don't trust them 
we've seen so many news reports about factory farms and about, you know, evil corporations of all kinds that people have a historically low level of trust Mm -hmm. in big institutions, including the government right now. And that's where we see this this fascination with self-sufficiency and people trying to homestead. So I interviewed a whole bunch of people who were were living this lifestyle to some degree, yeah. uh, people who, who who had moved from the city to farms, people who were still living in the city but were, you know, growing a whole lot of their own food. You know, one woman was living in Brooklyn and she was raising rabbits and chickens and had bees on her roof. Yeah, yeah. I don't have bees on my roof, but I do do some of these things. I, I have to confess a certain... Uh attraction toward them. I mean, there is a kind of moment here about authenticity. I think people find these things very authentic. They, they think it's, they're grounding themselves in some sort of American experience. And in a sense, they are by, by learning these, these things. And, and that, again, I think that's a good thing. People developing skills. I'm, I'm all for that. In, uh, in, in, in chapter nine of the book, you talk, it's called Strange Bedfellows, and it, it says how uh, new domesticity brings together liberals and conservatives, atheists, evangelicals, Mormon moms, radical queers, and uh, rural poor and urban rich. Can you talk a little bit about that? How does it bring people together? Yeah, so new domesticity is to a large extent identified with, uh, with progressive politics, but not completely. In fact, there are a whole lot of people that, you know, are quite the opposite politically who are embracing different aspects of new domesticity. So what we see is we have, you know, groups of people who are doing the same thing, but for very different ideological reasons. Let's take homeschooling. And I look at homeschooling and other forms of what I call DIY parenting. Um, you know, that includes uh, attachment parenting and people that are, are really sort of relying on themselves as experts and trying not to utilize, you know, outside stuff like daycare or, you know, potentially even doctors for their kids. So, so what you have is, you know, you, you have homeschoolers who are homeschooling because they're, you know, they're very liberal and they, you know, they don't want their kids' creativity to be squashed and they feel like public schools do that. And then you have homeschooler, you know, homeschooling parents who are ultra Christian and they don't want their kids to be learning about, um, you know, evolution. And you have, when it comes to this parenting stuff, you might have, you know, breastfeeding groups where you have women who are ultra liberal and who are, you know, interested in everything organic and everything natural. And then you have women who are doing the same thing, but because they believe that, you know, this is what God wants and mm-hmm. God made, you know, so, so you get these different things where you have people doing the same thing for different reasons. And a lot of it is about opting out, opting out of you know, government services, opting out of um, uh, relying on corporations. You have people who are, you know, into into gardening because, you know, because they're, they're in liberal environmentalists. And then you have people that are into gardening because they are uh, libertarians who want to live off grid. Mm-hmm. You have people that, that are interested in self-sufficiency and homesteading because they, you know, again, it's about sustainability and not, not giving money to corporations. And then you have people who are homesteading because they're, you know, basically you know, conservative neo-survivalists who think Armageddon's <laughs> coming. So, yeah, yeah, that was that was very interesting yeah, no, to I see, me. I see what you mean. I mean, again, it rings true with my own experience. My sister stays home, and she's kind of new domestic in that way, and she lives in Alabama, and uh, she's the farthest thing from liberal. I'll say that. 
Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. So she does send her kids to school, but um, so I guess I, 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 we're about out of time. But I want to ask a, a question about how long has the book been out? It came out in in when did it come out? It came out in May. So May. It's been out yeah. a few so, months. so have you gotten reviews, or how's it been received so far? Because it seems some of the things in here I would say are a little bit controversial, particularly from the uh, sort of third wave that the wave we're in feminist perspective. So, what, what kind of feedback have you gotten on it? So, you know, it's really interesting. It's you know the, the reviews have, have mostly been really positive. Um, you know, the, the, the professional reviews, and then, but when it comes to just you know uh, everyday people, I think people have really taken the book as a way as a just a, a window to look at these things, and the way they f- tend to feel about the book, I think, really reflect their some of their own politics and some of their own pre-existing feelings. So I have some people that are going, oh, well, thank you so much for writing a book that validates, you know, my long-standing belief that, <laughs> you know, that God wants women to be in the home. Mm-hmm. And then I have people going, you know thank you for writing this like amazing feminist book that says that, you know, women should all be in the workplace, you know, and I really don't say either in the yeah, book, right. but, but that people are able to take it and are able to look at it and just form their, you know, and, and use, use it as a way of, of talking and thinking about these things yeah. and come to such different conclusions. Yeah. Yeah. I see. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. No, it's a very, it's a very interesting thing. You've definitely put your finger on something. I have absolutely no doubt about it. So I want to, I want to thank you for writing the book and being on the show. Let me ask you uh, in conclusion, our traditional final question on the new books network. And that is, oh, what are you working on now? What's your, your current project? <laughs> well, um, the two stories I've been working on this week are uh, one is a, a story about um, adoption, about the adoption reform movement, and one is a story about a farm in New York where everyone speaks Yiddish. So <laughs> I would say that, that my, my current interests are pretty are pretty varied. Yeah, no, that's, that's what pretty, my yeah. looks that's like. <laughs> Yiddish speaking farms. Um, wow, that's really quite something. Um, reviving, reviving an old uh, shtetl tradition. So the, uh, anyway, uh, uh, Emily, I want to thank you for being on the show today. We've been talking with Emily Matcher about her book, um, Homeward Bound, Why Women Are Embracing the New Domesticity. And I want to thank everybody for listening to this podcast. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. Thank you, Emily. Thank you for having me. All right, bye-bye.